down the road, she came to the palace, she came to the guard and she said, I have come to try to make the silent prince speak. Jim Dill said, oh no, no, there's two in there. There's an itty bitty one and a medium sized scare. I wouldn't go in there if I was you. We love it's time for the apple seat, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today and to bring you these tales. And today's episode is full of food and clever tricks and love and falls from pride and hilarious mishaps. First off, we're going to hear from Donna Washington with a story called Boo Stew, a story that proves that anyone can be a good cook if you have the right people eating your food. And in an entry in the radio, Family Journal. We'll hear about riding bikes, and we're going to hear from Anthony Bircher in our conversation with a friend today about meeting an old television hero. You'll hear a story called The Silent Prince by Dan Yashinsky about a girl who tries to get the silent prince to talk. Of course, if she fails, she'll lose her head. It's one of those stories. Finally, we'll hear Diane Volkstein with The Emperor's New Clothes, the Hans Christian Andersen classic about not letting your pride keep you from being honest and believing what your eyes are seeing. You won't want to miss a minute of it. And to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Alyssa Mingurance. Alyssa, great to have you with me. Hi, I love being here, Sam. This is a, such a fun story that we're going to hear today. Yes. Tell us a little bit about Boo Stew. Yes. So in this tale, there's a young woman who, you know, she's brave, she's smart, she's kind, she's all the right things. The only problem is she lives next to, like, the most haunted mountain in the world. <laughs> you know, of course, uh, as these things tend to go. Um, and it's a really wonderful story, and by the end of it, you will have learned a new recipe. However, it's probably not a recipe you'll want to make. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. This is uh, Donna Washington. Donna Washington is the storyteller. And this comes from kind of a, a cycle of stories that she developed with her kids. And mm. uh, they're so, so fun, these stories. Uh, you, you might think that a, a story called Boo Stew might be scary. It's not really very scary. Not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> Threat level zero on mm -hmm. the scare front, right? Donna Washington with Boo Stew, and we're happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Now this story is called Boo Stew, and we decided to make it up because we thought it would be fun to have a story where there was a really disgusting recipe. The story goes like this. Now once, there was a young lady named Curly Locks, and she was beloved by just about everybody in her town. Why, she was really good at hunting and fishing, and she could shear sheep as well as anybody. She was kind and nice and polite, and she wasn't as scared of much of anything, and that was good because her village was right near one of the most haunted mountains in the whole world. But there was one thing that Curly Locks could not do. Curly Locks was a terrible cook, and she loved to cook, but it was always really terrible. Nobody ever wanted to taste anything she made. It always made her kind of sad. Anyway, one day, the mayor of her town was sitting down at the table, getting ready to eat himself a great big peanut butter and turkey sandwich. And just as he got ready to take his first bite, 
and Itty Bitty Scared jumped up on his table and said, Gitchy boo, gitchy bon, gitchy you, gitchy gone. The mayor dropped that sandwich and ran out of the house. <laughs> he ran right outside and he bumped into Jim Dill. Now, Jim Dill was pretty strong and pretty powerful. And he said, Mayor, why are you running like that? And the mayor said, There's an itty-bitty scare in my house. I wouldn't go in there if I were you. <laughs> well, you ain't me. And Jim Dill said, I'll get rid of that shortly. You just watch. And he went on inside the house. And there was that itty-bitty scare sitting right there at the table, wearing that peanut butter and turkey sandwich on his head like a hat. Jim Dill reached over, shook, grabbed that itty-bitty scare, pulled him right up off the table and just went, <laughs> And that's when he felt a tap, tap, tapping on his shoulder. And he turned around, and right behind him, was a medium-sized scare. And he said, Gitchy boo, gitchy bon, gitchy you, gitchy gone. Jim Dill dropped that itty-bitty scare and ran a screaming right out of that house. <laughs> he went out in the front yard, and there was the mayor talking to this fella named Billy Witt. Now, Billy Witt, he wasn't very smart, but he always carried great big old rope in his belt. And the mayor was saying, Yeah, and there was this little bitty scare in there, and he almost completely destroyed my sandwich. And Jim Dill come running out of there, and Billy Witt said, Now, nah, Jim Dill, why are you running like that? Mayor said there was only one little bitty itty bitty scare in there. Jim Dill said, Oh, no, no, there's two in there. There's an itty bitty one and a medium sized scare. I wouldn't go in there if I was you. And Billy Witt said, Well, you ain't me. And he went right on inside that house. And when he got in there, there was the itty-bitty scare sitting at the table drawing pictures in the peanut butter. And there was the medium-sized scare sitting on the floor chewing on one of the mayor's chairs. Well, Billy Witt reached out, picked up that itty-bitty scare by the scruff of his neck, took out that rope, lassoed the medium-sized scare. He was feeling pretty good about himself when he heard a sound coming down the hall. Thump, 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 thump. And into the kitchen came the biggest scare he'd ever seen. And that great big scare said, Get ye boo, get ye bon, get ye you, get ye gone. Billy Wit untied that medium-sized scare, dropped that itty bitty scare and ran a screaming right out of that house. Ah! Well, when he got outside, he told Mayor and Jim Dill all about what was going on in there, and they all started getting worried. They all started getting worried. People started hearing them and looking at them wandering around there, and they started talking about what they were going to have to do. Maybe it was time to leave the whole place. Maybe it was time to pack up, because if scares could go right into the mayor's house. Why, that was just terrible. And that's when Curly Locks heard about the whole thing. And she came up with a plan to get rid of them scares once and for all. She got herself a big old fry pan and some ingredients, and she went off to the mayor's house. And when he saw her, he said, Curly Locks, there's an itty-bitty scare, a medium-sized scare, and a great big, huge scare.
scare in my house. I wouldn't go in there if I were you. Well, it ain't me. And she went right inside. She went into the kitchen, and she didn't see any of them scares anywhere. She put a great big old black fry pan right up on the stove, and she got out some onions, and she started chopping them up. Just as she was doing that, that itty-bitty scare popped up right on the counter. And he said, Get ye boo, get ye bon, get ye you, get ye gone. And Curly Lock said, I'll go if you like, but I won't be able to finish making my famous batch of boo stew. And the itty-bitty scare said, Boo stew! Ooh! And he went over and sat at the table with his big old hairy feet swinging back and forth. And then Curly Locks got four hot peppers, chopped them up, put them in the pan, six dried lizard skins, a whole cup of toad stools. She chopped up some pine cones for seasoning, and then she poured some possum grease on it to get it nice and brown. And that's when she felt a tap, tap, tapping on her shoulder. She turned around, and right behind her was a medium-sized scare, and he said, Get ye boo, get ye bon, get ye you, get ye gone. And Curly Lock said, I'll go if you like, but I won't be able to finish whipping up a batch of my famous boo stew. And the medium-sized scare said, Boo stew! Ooh! And he went and sat at the table with his long purple tongue hanging out. <laughs> well, after that, Curly Locks put in four cups of water, some chocolate chips, a handful of worms, some sour milk. She chopped up some more toad stools. <laughs> after that, she put in snail slime and some chopped up dandelion roots. She was just putting the finishing touches on when she heard a sound coming down the hall. Thump! 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 And the biggest scare Curly Locks had ever seen came into the kitchen. And he said, Get ye boo, get ye bon, get ye you, get ye gone! Curly Locks never been so scared in all her life. She was a shaking in her bare feet, but she tried not to let on any. I'll go if you like, but I won't be able to finish making up a batch of my famous boo stew. And the great big scare said, Boo stew! Ooh! And he went over and sat at the table with the other two scares. They couldn't wait. That smell was smelling so good. In fact, the smell was filling up the kitchen. And then it started going out the windows. And out in the front yard, the people started smelling that smell. And it was disgusting. Everyone was trying to figure out what that was. It was so awful. And then one of them said, She must be trying to scare the scares away with that horrible smell. Or even worse, maybe she's trying to cook. They all ran out of the front yard holding their mouths and their noses. But inside the kitchen, 
the three scares thought it smelled wonderful. They were rolling their eyes and pinching their noses and sniffing really, really hard, and they were slobbering. They couldn't wait to get hold of that boost, too. And when it was done, Curly Locks dished up three great big old bowls full, and they just drank it down. <laughs> And they asked for seconds, and they drank those down. <laughs> and when all the stew was gone, they asked for more. And Curly Locks said, We'll make a deal. If you guys go on up back into the mountains, I'll come up there and make you guys another batch of boo stew. And the three scares thought that was a very good idea, and whoosh, they flew right out the window and back up into the mountains. Well, everybody was so proud of Curly Locks. They gave her a medal, and they thanked her so very much, and they respected her even more than before. Only thing is, they didn't get to see her too much after that. Because those scares, when they went back up into those haunted mountains, they told all the hates and such all about the boo-stoo. And they got all them scary things so excited about it that when Curly Locks went up there, there was a whole bunch of them waiting for Boo Stew. It got to the point where she had to go up there almost every day, so she opened herself a restaurant right up there in those mountains, and she cooked every single day, and her place was always packed. Now, you might think that she wouldn't have been too happy having to serve all those ghouly, scary-looking creatures, but the truth is... She was just happy she'd found someone who liked her cooking. And that's the story of Curly Locks and the Three Scares. The end. Boo Stew, a story told for us by Donna Washington. Not super, super scary, but you're right, Alyssa. I got to tell you, a recipe that I may not actually bring yeah, to my that's, that's probably to for my the best. Yes. That, that, that's a good move. <laughs> <laughs> I love kind of the, the participation that Donna gets from, uh, from the kids on that recording. Right? Absolutely. I always think it's fun to have multiple voices on a recording because yeah. it, it's always fun and mixes it up. And then I think it's especially fun to have kids' voices on the recording. Yeah. 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 It's so fun, not only, uh, uh, we hear a lot of that on recordings that we bring to you here on The Appleseed. Uh, we hear certainly wonderful storytelling, and we hear the storytelling often performed in front of these enthusiastic audiences, mm -hmm. often the enthusiastic audiences of kids. So yeah. you get these real lovely, uh, uh, you get this really lovely experience hearing the kids react to a, uh, to a great story. Yeah, and sometimes that's half the fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I agree. Thanks so much for bringing this story to us, Alyssa. It's great to have you. Thank you. There's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. 
It's great to have you with us today on the Apple Seed. If you're just joining us, we just heard a story from Donna Washington, a story called Boo Stew. And coming up, you're going to hear from Dania Shinsky with a fairy tale called The Silent Prince, in which a girl tries to get the silent prince to talk, but if she fails, she'll lose her head. But uh, first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you to share with the people that you love, here's a memory of mine. It's all about riding bikes. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. My first bike was a little yellow Royce Union with fenders and tall chrome handlebars and a long black banana seat. I've talked about it before. I was seven when I got it, and I had it until sixth grade. Now, over the years, I worked on it. I took off the fenders, I replaced the banana seat with a little racing saddle, and replaced the swooping chrome handlebars with black BMX handlebars. And all these changes were brought on by the fact that as happy as I was to have a bike at all, I wanted a bike that could stand the rigors of the gravel pits. Now, the gravel pits are pretty much what they sounded like, right? Land developers had dug an enormous pit out among the scrub oak on the west end of our small town, and then they had left it. And it was full of enormous piles of dirt and big flat areas and little canyons and ditches, and kids had gone up there for months and months. And by riding their bikes over and over again up ridges and over moguls and along flat stretches, they had developed this elaborate system of packed-down tracks where the neighborhood kids could ride. It was like a skate park, supersized, and only for bikes, and only for tough bikes at that. So, over time, the Royce Union got a makeover to bring it more or less in line with the dirt bikes running those trails and ramps and hills at the gravel pits. Having a bike with BMX handlebars and a racing saddle instead of a banana seat wasn't the only hurdle, though, to riding at the pits. First, you had to get out there, And the gravel pits had, well, it had a secret entrance. Once you'd reached the fork at the intersection of Westfield Road and 400 West, and you took the right fork and had to climb a steep hill for a couple of hundred yards, you had to look carefully for the cut to the left on a dirt trail. And the trail took you through the brush screen that separated the civilized world from the wonders of the gravel pits, and there you were. The trail opened out onto the rim of the pits, and it was another breakneck dive down a long, steep, curving trail to get you down to the pit floor. That long descent was only one bike wide, so kids took it one at a time and were always lined up, six or seven of them, waiting their turn to make that long fall. And it meant that when you made that drop, It was under the scrutiny of every kid there. Everyone watched everyone else. And while there was a lot to do down there on the floor of the gravel pits, there were really only two things that anyone was interested in doing. One of them was simply to ride that long, steep, curving hill over and over. They'd take that ride down the incline and skid to a stop at the bottom and throw up a big rooster tail of dirt. And then they'd get off their bikes and then push them back to the top of the hill and get back in line and do it all over again. 
But the big kids and the bravest little kids did the other thing. They'd rocket down that same hill, but instead of breaking at the bottom, they'd shoot like lightning over the flat bottom of the pit and over a white arcing curve up an enormous berm that we all called Half Moon and then circled back down into the pit. Now that berm was steep enough that the trip up and then the loop back down again had you horizontal for a few seconds, riding on a wall, defying gravity, flying. And if you could do it and survive, you were moving fast enough that with a little pedaling, your bike would simply carry you back out across the flat bottom of the pit and up to its rim again where you'd be back in line. No climbing, no getting off your bike at all. No pushing for sure. We called it Half Moon, like I said, and riding Half Moon was a rite of passage for every kid in the neighborhood. And I got to tell you, it took me a long time. I came down that long hill and skidded to a stop at the bottom a million times before I tried to take the whole trip, but eventually I had to do it. Under the eyes of all my friends, I leaned into that long fall with the pedals blazing and shot out across the straightaway, and then my stomach and my throat made that long curve up the berm and back down again, and there's a moment that I figure every kid experiences on that hill. That moment, just as the angle of the berm gets vertical and you realize that if you go forward, even one more foot, you got to do the whole thing. A moment where you realize that there's no stopping. You'll have to ride that whole wall or you'll crash and die. And I don't think I'll ever forget what it felt like to reach that moment and swallow my fears and power through. I'll never forget it because it still happens. It happens all the time, doesn't it? I mean, for me, taking on a project or getting a new job or starting college or getting married or just walking out on stage, a million times, something big has been accompanied by that feeling, that sensation that I first got acquainted with riding half moon at the gravel pits, that moment just before I found myself defying gravity, flying. Lean in, man. Go one more step, just another foot, and there's no turning back. You're going all the way. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. You know, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. If that happens, open your mouth, share them around the kitchen table or the living room, and share them with us. Write them down and send them to theappleseed at byu.edu. That's our email address, theappleseed, all one word, at byu. Edu. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear uh, a telling of the Emperor's New Clothes, the classic Hans Christian Andersen tale, and a story called The Silent Prince by Dan Yashinsky. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the films that we see, the books that we read, of course, the tales that get told from teller to listener, sometimes over generations and generations, the meals that we share, the songs that we remember, and talking about some of those ways in which great stories come into our hearts and our lives is something that we love to do with friends here on the Appleseed, and I'm pleased to be joined in conversation by Anthony Bircher. You've heard Anthony's stories on the Appleseed for many years. 
years, and it's such a pleasure to be joined from him. He joins us from his home in Virginia. Anthony, such a pleasure to have you with me. Oh, Sam, good to be with you. I hope you're doing well. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about you. You, you were influenced by uh, in an era where this, I think, was more common than it is now, right? Uh, uh, movie programs that sort of had as their selling point the personality of the host of the movie program, right? Oh, oh, definitely. And so, uh, so, so amazing where inspirations come from. Yeah, but uh, this one story I, I tell from time to time, uh, it actually came from another human being who wasn't. Um, he was a horror movie, late night horror movie host, <laughs> and I'll explain how this all came to be. Uh, when my brother Matt was twelve years old, he received the best birthday present we ever got, and that was a twelve-inch portable television, <laughs> and. Yeah, back then portable meant half the size of a Volvo. Right, right. It, it was huge, solid state. And we took it back to our bedroom. And this was truly amazing. Uh, a, a point in our lives, for the first time ever, we didn't have to watch what our parents were watching. Mm. This was truly, and you had those same three stations, ABC, NBC, and CBS, but we could watch different stuff than our parents. And then on this television, brand new, something I'd never seen before, underneath the main dial, which went up to 13, underneath that main dial was this little clear dial with all kinds of numbers on it, little spinny dial. And uh, this, was, this was incredible. We were able to tune in stations, programs, all the way from England. Right, and, and there, you know, there are people in our audience who won't even remember that dial, the UHF <laughs> dial, right? That's what it's it had called. A, hundreds of numbers on it, yeah. And we watched all this British programming, and we also noticed that the, the station was always asking for money. And so <laughs> we called it uh, the, uh, the, the Poor British Station, PBS, you're familiar with it. And so, but that was our name for it. And then we found late at night when we weren't supposed to, we were supposed to be in bed, but late at night, if we played with the antenna, rabbit ears, some folks will remember, yeah. we could get stations as far away as Richmond, a whole nother mark, our, our, the, you know, our capital city of Richmond, we could get stations from there. And just one night, about 1230 evening, we lucked into maybe my all time favorite program. It was called the Bowman Body. This character, this ghoul, he's dressed like a ghoul, come out of this cardboard casket, and he introduced the horror movie he was going to show, but he made fun of it the entire time, and his <laughs> sense of humor was perfect for, for boys, and around the age of 11, 12, he made us laugh so much. Mr. Bowman, the Bowman body was incredible, ran around the studio insane, and uh and as we couldn't figure it out, how come, how could he get away with this? He didn't act like other adults acted. This was amazing. <laughs> and then my favorite joke in the whole show came at the end of the movie. He'd make fun of the movie, but then the show's about over. He had this expression. He'd say, well, the, the wolves are gathering on the hill. And there was this long standing joke with the sound effects guy. You weren't going to hear wolves. You were going to hear, sure. <laughs> you heard every animal in the world except for wolves. And we laugh. We just roll in our beds and laugh, laugh, laugh. It was wonderful. But then it's, now it's time to fast forward 30 years. Yeah. I am running a camp, a pres my wife and I, Presbyterian Church summer camp. It was amazing. On Sunday, uh, probably, uh, Sunday afternoons, I called it the parade of minivans. Minivan after minivan would show up, dropping their kids off for summer camp. And then on Saturday morning, it flip-flop. Here they came again to pick up their kids. 
And on that Saturday morning in this big field, we had blankets, sleeping bags, stuffed animals, pillows, just came out of every corner of that camp. And parents showed up to pick up their kids. And I'm out there saying goodbye to all the parents and thanking them for sending their kids and whatnot. And almost everybody's left. And our camp nurse, she came over to me. She said the oddest thing. She says, Anthony, you grew up here, didn't you? Oh, yeah, I sure did. She says, do you remember the Bowman body? I said, yeah, I remember the Bowman body. Of course I remember the Bowman body. I love the Bowman body. And she pointed to this van driving off the property. And she goes, there he goes. I said, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> and she says, you know, our camper Casey Bowman, right? I said, yes. Yeah. She says, well, that's, his, that's her granddad. And so I was like, what? Now, it was so, I was so annoyed with her, but I now had to wait an entire year for him to come back <laughs> to our camp. And then when he did, so I was there that morning. When he, the car door opens and he, he gets out. I hit him with every fanboy question, gush, gush, I could. He was so polite, so kind, answered everything I had to talk about, wanted to know. And I said, oh, my brother Matt is not going to believe I met you. And he says, we'll take care of that next week. <laughs> and then the next weekend, he comes to pick up Casey, and he had with him a signed picture. Oh, that's great. Sure I still have today. And so Casey, though, was taking your time getting her stuff together. And Mr. Bowman says, all right, Casey, it's getting getting late. We need to head on. She says, I'm coming, I'm coming. She's saying goodbye to her friends and whatnot. He says, Casey, we need to go. And she says, I'm coming. And then I just couldn't stop myself. I said, the wolves are gathering on the hill. <laughs> and here's the thing. He laughed. <laughs> the man who had made me laugh hundreds, if not thousands of times, he laughed. Now, that picture is a true treasure of mine. Keep it to the States. It's in my living room. Yeah. And But uh, that laugh is much more of a treasure oh, sure. than that picture. Yeah. I, I cherish uh, it to this day. <laughs> These moments where we get to associate with our heroes, right? The, the, the people yeah. who have meant a great deal to us. And we find ourselves engaging with them when we have a chance, and they seem delighted by it. What a gift. What a, what a, what a remarkable gift. Anthony, thanks for sharing it with us here on The Appleseed. Oh, my pleasure. You can find Anthony's work at anthonybircher.com. Lots to see and do there. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with our friend Anthony Bircher. We'll try to have him back soon. And uh, up next, you're going to hear The Silent Prince, a story by Dan Yashinsky. And, of course, Diane Volkstein's telling of the classic Hans Christian Andersen tale, The Emperor's New Clothes. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. Such a pleasure to have you with me today for these stories. Up next, a story from Dan Yashinsky. He'll share with us the classic tale, The Silent Prince, about a prince who refuses to speak but promises to marry anyone who can get him to talk. You know, someone who almost never speaks or someone who is the opposite, refuses to ever stop speaking? Well, whether or not you default to chatty or quiet, you're going to enjoy Dan Yashinsky's tale, The Silent Prince, here on The Appleseed. Once upon a time, there was a king and a queen, and they had a son. And he never spoke. Nobody knew why. He seemed intelligent. He was a beautiful boy, but he never spoke. And he came to be known as the Silent Prince. 
Now, when he was about 18 years old, the king and queen issued a proclamation that said, anybody who can make our son the silent prince speak will win a great reward. And then in their very small print at the bottom of the proclamation, you really have to check these royal proclamations very carefully. It said, anybody who tries and fails will have his or her head chopped off and stuck on a fence post around the palace. So at the time my story begins, many men had come and tried to make the silent prince speak. Doctors, philosophers, a lot of politicians. <laughs> Many very intelligent men, and their heads were all found on the fence all around the palace. There was one post empty. Down the road from this palace lived a girl about 18 years old. She lived with her grandmother, her bubby, her nona, her oma. And one day she said to her grandmother, Granny, you're wise. I would like you to teach me your wisdom because I would like to try to make the silent prince speak and win the great reward. And the granny said, my beloved, have you ever walked by the palace and looked at the fence? <laughs> yes. A lot of heads out there. Yes. All men. I would like to be the first woman to try. But I can't do it alone. I need your wisdom. Please teach me your wisdom. Granny said, I can't. It's very hard to teach wisdom. I could only teach you my wisdom on two conditions. One, you would have to listen to me all night without falling asleep. Two, you must not interrupt when I'm speaking. You must listen without interrupting. Can you do that? And she said, I will try. And that night, she listened all night without interrupting, without falling asleep. Her granny spoke wisdom. She listened. She remembered. And in the morning, she said, thank you, granny. I will go and try. And her grandmother said, Goodbye, my beloved. Don't lose your head. She walked down the road. She came to the palace. She came to the guard, and she said, I have come to try to make the silent prince speak. They brought her to the king and queen, who looked at her, and they thought, what a shame to have a beautiful young woman's head up on the fence post. But they said, here are the rules. You get to spend one night in the prince's bedroom with a witness, and in the morning we find out what happened. She went into the prince's bedroom. She sat down, and she didn't say anything. She just sat there. Well, the prince was very puzzled, because everybody else who'd come in, all the men who'd come in, had done a lot of talking. She just sat quietly. And while she sat quietly, he looked at her, and she was beautiful. He looked at her hair, he looked at her eyes, he looked at her neck, and she was beautiful. She was as beautiful as the women in this room today. She was beautiful. <laughs> But she wasn't speaking until finally she opened her mouth and she spoke, but not to him. She turned to the witness and she said, tomorrow I die. Would you tell me a story to give me courage to face my death? And the witness said, well, I don't know any stories. I'm just a witness. Would you listen to my story if I told it to you? I'll listen. And this is the story she told. She said, once there were three women, about 18 years old, each one had a magic power. One had a telescope that could see anywhere in the world what was happening at that moment. Another had an airplane that could travel instantly around the world anywhere. The third had found a magic apple. One bite of the apple would cure any sickness. So the three were friends, and one day they met, and the one took her telescope, and she looked, and she said, "Oh." 
On the other side of the world, a, a, a man is dying, a young man, very handsome, a prince. The one with the airplane said, let's go. They flew to the other side of the world. They came into the prince's room. He was dying. The one took her apple, gave him one bite. He was instantly cured. And he jumped up and he saw these three women in his room. And they were beautiful. And he thought to himself, I'm healthy now. I'm single. I'll ask one of them to marry me. <laughs> Maybe one of them will agree. I'll ask the one who did the most to cure me. And here the girl stopped her story. And she said to the witness, I have a question for you. Each one did something to cure the sick prince. Which one did the most? Which one should he ask to marry him? Who do you think? The apple. The apple, why? The final cure. The, 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 cure. the cure was the, was the apple, indeed. Do you all agree? No, no we've had a lot of polls lately in Canada. But. The telescope, the initial vision, and so on, yeah. No one votes for the airplane. <laughs> well, the witness said, that's a hard riddle. I'm not good at riddles. I don't know. But the prince had been listening very carefully. And he opened his mouth and he said, I have an idea. And the girl said, I'm very pleased to hear you say that. <laughs> what is your idea? He said, I think it's the woman with the apple. And she said, why? He said, the woman who used her telescope lost nothing by using it, nor the woman with her airplane. But the woman who gave up a bite of her apple will never get that bite back again. She's the only one who gave up something for the sake of the sick prince. And the girl said, that is a wise answer. And indeed, he asked the woman with the apple. She agreed they were married. And one day, I hope you find someone who will give up something for you. And in the morning, the king and queen came in. What happened? They said to the witness, what happened? Witness said, your son spoke. The queen was over the moon. And the king said, I don't believe it. Why should our son start speaking now just because he spent the night with a beautiful young woman in his bedroom? <laughs> I insist on a second night with two witnesses, and that's what happened. Two witnesses, the prince, the girl, same as before. He was waiting, waiting, waiting. For... Finally, she spoke, but not to him, to the two witnesses. And she said, tomorrow I die. Tell me a story to give me courage to face my death, please. We don't know stories. Would you listen to mine if I told it to you? Yes. There was once a young man, and he had a girlfriend, and she was a witch. But she never told him that. She was afraid he might leave her. She was just a little nervous about telling the whole truth about herself. And anyway, one night he was walking through the forest. It was that time of night the French call l'heure entre chien et loup, the hour between the dog and the wolf, when you can't really see things as they are or aren't. And he looked ahead and there was a woman, a young woman, and maybe his, no, it was a witch. He picked up a rock. And he threw the rock at the witch before he even thought about it. And he hit the witch, bless you. And he hit the witch and she disappeared. Well, the very next day when he went to see his girlfriend, she was limping. And when she turned around, he saw a wound on her leg right where he had thrown the rock. And now he knew. And he said, so it was you. You are the witch. And she said to her boyfriend, yes, I'm the witch. 
She told him everything. She told the whole truth about herself. And here the girl stopped her story. And she said to the two witnesses, I have a question for you. Now that the young man knows the truth about his girlfriend, what should he do? Well, you were so fast with the other story. <laughs> what should he do? Keep, keep dating her? Marry her right away, grab her. The two witnesses said, we don't know, we're not good at riddles, these are so hard. And the prince had been listening very carefully. He opened his mouth and said, I have an idea. She said, I'm very pleased to hear you say that. She said, what is your idea? He said, I think you should marry her. They should keep her secret together. She said, a good answer, a wise answer, unusual for a man. <laughs> You understand that when people love each other, sometimes they give up secrets. Sometimes they learn new ones as well. I hope one day you find someone who will give up a secret for you. Well, king and queen, what happened? He spoke. Well, queen, yes. King, no, one more night. Well, to make a long story a little longer, <laughs> the prince, the girl, three witnesses, third night. Tell me a story. I'm dying tomorrow. I need courage to face my death. We don't know stories. We've never been to Words Aloud. We've never gone to hear storytellers at school or libraries or anywhere. Would you listen to my story if I told it to you? Well, listen. And this is the third story she told. There was once a man who loved women, and he dreamed of them every night. And they flew through his dreams with golden wings, the faces of women. They were firebirds. And one day when this man who dreamed of women was walking through the forest, there was a blaze of golden light. He was scared, and he hid. And when he opened his eyes, there in front of him was a firebird, more beautiful than any of his dreams. And she was taking off a suit of golden feathers and stepping into a spring of water to bathe. He couldn't take his eyes off her. She took off her feathers, she bathed in the water, and while she was bathing, he stepped out of his hiding place, and he took all the feathers, and he ran away. He hid them in the forest. When he came back, she had stepped out of the water. She was looking here and looking there for her golden feathers. He came up to her and he said, you look cold. Here's my coat. He put it around her bare shoulders. And then he said, you're not from around here, are you? She said, no. I come from very far away. Look, I have a cabin not far away. Come up there. You can be warm. You'll be safe. I'll take care of you. I love you. And she had no choice. Anyway, she went with him. She went with him. And she stayed. And it was a nice cabin. And she did feel safe. And he did love her. And a few years went by. And anyway, she became pregnant. And one day, she had a little boy. And the boy grew up till he was about four or five years old. And when he was yeah, about five years old, he came running into his mother. She was in the house. And she said, Mommy, I found something beautiful. I want to show you. And he took his mother by the hand and led her out into the forest, down the trail, along the hill, down into the forest. And he moved away a few leaves from the hollow of a log that was a blaze of golden light. Isn't it pretty, mummy? Oh, yes, she said. It's beautiful. And she reached in and took her suit of golden feathers out of the log. Let's go home now. It's time for your nap. And she took the little boy by the hand and they went back to the cabin. She said, thank you. This is very beautiful. 
And she sat by the bed and stroked her son's head as he fell asleep, and with the other hand she held her golden feathers. And the girl stopped her story. And she said to the three witnesses, now that the woman can fly again, what should she do? She should fly away with her son. With her son? <laughs> fly away with her son is a nice answer. The three witnesses said, we don't know. That's the hardest riddle of all. But the prince had been listening very carefully. He opened his mouth and he said, I have an idea. She said, I'm very pleased to hear you say that. What is your idea? He said, I can't tell you what the woman of your story should do. Your story is bitter and sweet at the same time. And as I listened, I thought to myself, if I were the man of that story and I had seen the firebird in her true form, I would do anything to keep her with me. But then I thought, if I were the woman of your story, and I had once come from the sky, I would do anything in the world to return to it. I cannot say what the woman of your story should do. And she said to the prince, that is a wise answer. Not all stories are meant to be judged. With some you simply hear and remember, and I will tell you what happened next. She kissed her son without waking him up. She stepped to the threshold of the house. She put on the golden feathers. She flew away. And when her husband came back, she was gone. And the prince said, what happened to the little boy? And she said, some people say that when he woke up and found his mother was gone, he began to cry. And he cried so much, he lost his voice and became silent. And other people say when he woke up, there on the pillow next to him was a golden feather, and it brought him luck and courage and joy and wealth all the days of his life. And in the morning when they came in, what happened, what happened? Three witnesses, he spoke, he spoke, he spoke, and even the king believed it. And so they turned to the girl and said, you have done what no man could do, you have made our son speak. What would you like as your great reward? Had she been thinking about rewards? No, just telling stories, telling stories. She couldn't think. For the first time, she had nothing to say. So the prince got up, walked across the room, bent down, looked at her, and said, choose me. <laughs> she said, I have an idea. <laughs> I'll take him. Bring a long story to an end. She, they were married. It was a grand celebration. In the place of honor was sitting Bubby. Granny, Nona, Oma, the grandmother, had a bouquet of wildflowers she had picked that morning before dawn in the forest. And as the girl walked by, she gave her the flowers and she said, you see, you should always listen to your granny. <laughs> Dan Yashinsky with The Silent Prince here on The Appleseed. And we're going to wrap up today with a tale that you probably know. There's nothing like a classic, right? And this is Hans Christian Andersen's classic tale, The Emperor's New Clothes, told for you here by Diane Volkstein. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. The Emperor's New Clothes Many years ago, there lived an emperor 
who was so fond of new clothes, he spent all his money on them. He didn't care about the park or the army or going to the theater, except if it was an opportunity to show off his new clothes. If you would ask about a king and where he was, usually it would be said he's in his council chamber, discussing. If you asked about this emperor and where he was, it was always said he's in his dressing room, dressing. It was a lively city where the emperor lived. Visitors were always coming and going, and one day two swindlers came. They said they were weavers and could weave the most marvelous material imaginable. Not only were the colors and design beautiful, but it had the particular quality that if you were not fit for your job or hopelessly stupid, you would not be able to see it. I say, they must be wonderful clothes, thought the emperor, and he gave the swindlers a large sum of money to start work. They took the money and put it in their pockets while they set up empty looms and pretended to be weaving. Well now, thought the emperor, I wonder how they're getting on. Then he remembered the particular quality of the material. If you were stupid or not fit for your position, you would not be able to see it. Oh, of course he wasn't worried about himself. He was very confident. He was the emperor. But still it would be wiser to send someone else first. I will send my old minister. He's had his job longer than anyone else. He must be fit for his position. So the minister went and entered the workroom where the swindlers sat busily pretending to be weaving. The old minister looked and looked. Goodness gracious, he said to himself. I don't see a thing. Well, said the swindlers, what do you think? How do you find the design? I, I, I know I'm fit for my position. It must be. I'm stupid, thought the old minister. Well, no one must find out. So he turned to the swindlers and said, it's charming. It's exquisite. I shall tell the emperor how pleased I am. And he did. So the swindlers asked the emperor for more money and more thread and more delicate silk, all of which they put into their pockets while they went on pretending to be weaving. After a while, the emperor sent a younger counselor to find out when the material would be ready. The same thing happened to him as had happened to the old minister. When he entered the workroom, he looked at the loom. He looked, he looked. It was completely empty. Oh dear, I know I'm not stupid, 
must be I'm not fit for my position. So many would be glad to know it, but no one must find out. Yes, he said, it's delightful. I shall tell the emperor. Now the emperor himself had to see the material while it was still on the loom. So surrounded by a select group of courtiers, he went to the workroom. What's this? thought the emperor. I don't see a thing. Nothing more dreadful could happen to me. But I am the emperor. So he said, Magnificent! It has our most gracious approval. And all the courtiers who couldn't see a thing because there was nothing to be seen said, Magnificent! Exquisite! Delightful! Superb! And one of them said that the emperor should wear the material the next day in the procession. That night the swindler sat up all night burning sixteen candles. They worked very quickly, so everyone would think they were busy weaving. Then they pretended to take the material off the loom. They clipped away in the air with huge scissors, until at last they announced, The Emperor's new clothes are ready! The Emperor, with his gentlemen-in-waiting, arrived at the workroom and the weavers raised their arms as if they were holding something and said, His Majesty's trousers, His Majesty's robe, His Majesty's train, light as gossamer. You will feel as if you have nothing on, but that's just the beauty of them. Now, will your Majesty be so kind as to take off his clothes? The emperor took off his clothes, and the swindlers pretended to hand him each of his new garments. The emperor turned and looked at himself in the mirror. Goodness, said the courtiers, oh, what a fit, what colors, what a design. Just then, the master of ceremonies appeared and announced that the procession was waiting outside. All right, I'm ready, said the emperor, and turning around for one last look, he said, Aren't they a nice fit, my new clothes? Then the two gentlemen-in-waiting bent down and pretended to find the invisible train which they carried in their hands. So the emperor walked down the streets of the city in the procession. Oh, said the people, the emperor's new clothes are charming. They are the best he's ever had, for no one wanted it to be thought that they were stupid or not fit for their position. The emperor's new clothes were a great success. Until a little child standing there in the street pointed to the emperor and said, But he has nothing on. And the mother said, Yes, 
he has nothing on. And the father said, Indeed, he has nothing on. And the neighbor said, He has nothing on. And it passed all through the town. And the people together shouted out, But he has nothing on. And the emperor felt most uncomfortable, for he knew it was true. But still, he was the emperor, so he held himself straight. And the gentleman-in-waiting continued to hold the invisible train while the emperor walked down the streets of the town with nothing on. Diane Volkstein with a retelling of the classic Hans Christian Andersen tale, The Emperor's New Clothes. Such a pleasure to bring you that story, as well as that story by Dan Yashinsky, The Silent Prince. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. Can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.